Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Around the country, conservative lawmakers have introduced bills that are widely seen as restricting voting rights. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, over 360 of these bills have been introduced this year. Some states, like Arizona and Georgia, have been in the spotlight. And the most recent law was signed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis this week. Here he is on Fox & Friends. So right now I have what we think is the the strongest election integrity measures in the country. I'm actually going to sign it right here. It's going to take effect. While all of this is happening at the state level, many progressives have their hopes pinned to an overhaul of voting rights at the federal level. You might remember that back in March, the House passed H.R. 1, the For the People Act, on a party-line vote. But given the slim majority the Democrats have in the Senate, the bill's fate in that chamber is far less clear. This week, Senate Democrats made some changes to their version of the bill in advance of a Senate Rules Committee vote scheduled for next week, according to The Washington Post. The Senate bill, passed by the House in March, seeks to automatically register eligible voters, overhaul congressional gerrymandering, restore voting rights to felons who've completed their sentences, and require a minimum of 14 days of early voting, and more. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, host of What Next TBD from Slate, in for Tanzina Vega, and a look at the future of the For the People Act is where we start today on The Takeaway. Here to help us understand the changes and what the bill contains is Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon. Senator Merkley, thank you so much for joining us. Very good to be with you. This bill has a lot of stuff in it. But as you know, there is strong opposition from the GOP and even from some Democrats. If you had to narrow this down, what planks in this piece of legislation are most important to you? Well, there are three basic propositions in the in the bill. One is to end gerrymandering so that the people pick their elected representatives rather than the politicians choosing their voters. That's a corruption, gerrymandering is, of of equal representation. The second is to stop billionaires from buying elections by putting full transparency on how money moves through the system. And the third is to protect the, the ballot box as a fundamental right and freedom of every American. Why not take these things piece by piece? Why do it in a great big piece of legislation? Well, in the Senate, it's very difficult to get through a a bill um, because you have to go through an entire uh, process that uh, can take potentially weeks on the floor. And they're all very closely related, very closely tied together in terms of election integrity. And so it makes sense to have a a single debate and address each piece of it, uh, invite amendments uh, from the floor, have go through the full legislative process, but keep these elements tied together. We want to get all three accomplished. I ask that because Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who's the only Democrat in the Senate who is not co-sponsoring this bill, has expressed some reservations about how big it is, how comprehensive it is. I wonder if there are things that you could do to to bring him on board. Well, certainly we're working with uh, colleagues to bring them on on board. Uh, Joe has expressed concern about the ability to have the secretaries of state respond to all the elements in the bill in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. We're certainly going to be uh, uh, taking that that on. We want to make sure that that the changes that are most important get done for the election cycle next year. But there's other improvements that perhaps, such as uh, some of the more complicated improvements to automatic voter registration uh, that could be done uh, further out. 
In other words, we're going to work with our colleagues, and Joe's certainly not the only one who has points about things that would like to see adjusted, and we're going to uh, make, it, make it possible for everybody to be on board. Why not talk with your state-level colleagues about these issues? I mean, in 35 states, gerrymandering happens at the state level, and it seems to me there is some tension here between state Democrats and federally elected Democrats about how to best address this issue. Well, we have one of the uh, great complexities in America is that if you improve and get rid of gerrymandering in a single state, for example, uh, say here in Oregon, uh, if um, we have a process that is a little more fair here that improves Republican seats in our state, it actually increases the bias at the federal level. In fact, folks at the federal level, we're hearing Republicans talking about that gerrymandering now gives them 15 extra seats in the House of Representatives, but they want 25 extra seats in the House of Representatives. And so it makes sense to do it at the national level, get rid of it at the national level so that you don't create any sort of uh, bias between the state and the federal. What do you think is at stake for your party if you can't pass this bill? After all, this is something that your voters very much support, but the path forward in the Senate seems quite complicated, if not impossible. Well, it's, it's certainly not impossible, but it is extremely important because our parties are divided right now into one party, its priorities, improvement in policies for housing and health care and education, living wage jobs, freedom of opportunity for LGBT community and environmental issues. Those policies all take a supermajority in the Senate. And we have in the priorities for the Republicans, which have been to put corporate justices onto the Supreme Court and the lower courts and tax cuts for the rich, those only take a simple majority. So we already have the, the, the filibuster eliminated and uh, for the Republican priorities, but not for the Democratic priorities. So you have this enormous bias in Senate. Well, what this means is that if we don't pass this bill, we see another discrepancy in America in which laws will be done at the state level that will make it very hard for communities of color to vote, uh, for low-income communities to, to vote. And those tend to be constituencies that, that favor Democrats. So we're creating a bias for the priorities of the party for the rich and powerful, that is Republicans, and against the party that's trying to give an opportunity for every family to, to thrive. And these fundamental American values in our constitution, this vision of a, of a government of, by, and for the people, that's at stake here because these changes produce government of, by, and for the powerful. And that's why the Republicans are completely lined up uh, to pass them at the, at the state level and prevent passage of, of voter integrity at the national level. Well, speaking of the Republicans, I want to um, talk about kind of Republican opposition here. They are united against the bill, as you mentioned. So let's play a clip from GOP leader Mitch McConnell. Yeah, 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration. So he's talking about the administration, but this is obviously one of the administration's priorities for the people was Kamala Harris as the vice president's slogan when she was running. Um, what do you do with that? Because as you mentioned, um, this bill is not filibuster proof. So it feels to me like you're stuck. Well, two years ago, 
uh, when we had this bill, and Tom Udall was the lead from a senator from New Mexico who's now retired, and I was the, the, the co-pilot, Mitch McConnell called his members into a caucus and basically read them the riot act, that they not dare work with Democrats to take on gerrymandering or voter suppression or dark money. You know, dark money really came into its own after Citizens United was passed, well, passed, the Supreme Court decision. Supreme Court, decision. yep. And, uh, and then in the 2014 election, hundreds of millions of dollars flowed from the fossil fuel community. And the result was that it really helped Mitch McConnell win six Senate seats. So the world that McConnell lives in, this world of, of power, um, he wants to make sure that Republicans have the advantage of this hundreds of millions of dollars of dark money. And the fossil fuel community, the Koch brothers um, kind of expanded cartel of, of uh, fossil fuel companies, they are determined to keep this sort of bias in place. And he's- Well, I, I hear you, but it's also a question of, of math and, and votes here. Absolutely. So the Senate is divided 50-50. It's very clear we will not get a single Republican vote, but 50 votes and a vice president can pass a bill. Now, Mitch McConnell, when he wanted to pack the Supreme Court, he changed the rules by simple majority. When he wanted to get four judges done for the lower courts in a single day, he proceeded to make it three hours of debate rather than 30. And he did that by simple majority. In other words, he changed the rules by simple majority. When he wanted to do tax cuts for the rich, he changed the rules of a special process called reconciliation to do that by simple majority. So in other words, he has knocked down the filibuster for the Republicans three times to enhance the ability of Republicans to pass bills they favor. Democrats need to stare that straight in the face and say, we should have at least the same determination to get bills passed for the people as McConnell had to get bills passed for the powerful. So are you saying that you would attempt to pass this through reconciliation? Because if I look at this, this does not seem to me to be a, a, a budget related piece of legislation, which is what it would need to be ordered to do that. Well, in each of those cases, when I said that the rules were changed, uh, those those changes meant you use the existing process, uh, mm -hmm. but you proceed to change the rules for that existing process. You modify them. And so there's there's various ways that we could modify the requirement on policy bills that require 60 votes to close debate in order to say, well, we if a majority wants to close debate, we will close debate with a majority. That, of course, was the way the Senate was intended to operate. Our founders had a supermajority requirement in the Confederation, Congress of the Confederation, and uh, the therefore they they had they were paralyzed, and they said basically as they were writing the U.S. Constitution, don't do this. They set aside a supermajority only for special things like treaties and a veto override. They said, don't do it for legislation because it paralyzes the body. And that's what the Senate has become, has become a, a deep freeze. So if we're going to honor either the, the, the architectural vision of our constitution or the, the, the premise of government of, by, and for the people, we need to stop Mitch McConnell from being able to paralyze the Senate and causing the minority to control it on, on the issues that would, have, would improve the lives of, uh, of, of people, families across this, this country.
I know that reporters get criticized for focusing on process and not policy, and sometimes that happens uh, for members of Congress and senators as well, but it's so important because process determines what policy can take place. So I guess I'm wondering, is this a question for you of trying to have some dialogue with some of your GOP colleagues and maybe peel off a vote or two, or as you seem to be saying, nope, let's tweak the rules and and go straight ahead on a Democrat-only bill here? Oh, we would love to have Republican colleagues, uh, but uh, Mitch McConnell has locked down his his caucus. He's made it a, a just a, a test uh, and a an, an issue that that no member dare confront him on. And so we would need ten members. If we needed one or two, we might be able to to get that. But we're not going to get. But you have to get that that uh, filibuster proof majority. Well, yes, that's the point. If we yes yeah. to get. To get 60 votes, we would need 10 Republicans to join us. That is just not going to happen given the, the pressure. And you can say from your clip, you can hear how confident McConnell is about having locked down his members and that, that this is his major, major theme is to block this. So um, if we needed 51 or 52 votes, uh, which is the way the founders envisioned our Constitution, we would have a chance of getting those. But 60, no. So we would have to tweak how the Phillips works. Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon is a sponsor of the For the People Act. Senator, thank you so much. Thank you. Now we're going to discuss what's happening behind the scenes in terms of the Democratic strategy on voting rights legislation and the realities of getting it passed. We're joined today by Andrew Prokop, senior politics correspondent at Vox. Andrew, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Andrew, were you listening to my conversation with Senator Merkley? And I guess I wonder what stood out to you from what he had to say. Well, he was very clear that he sees no hope of getting any Republican Senate votes on the For the People Act in anything like its current form, which means really the only possible way that they can pass this bill is by changing Senate rules uh, to let it get past the filibuster. The problem with that is that they need every Democratic senator, all 50, to do that. And as you discussed, uh, one of the big roadblocks here is Senator Joe Manchin uh, of West Virginia. I interviewed Senator Manchin for a, a big profile a couple weeks ago, and I asked him about this specifically. And he recoils at the very idea of a party line bill to overhaul the American voting system. He says yeah. that it would just make the tensions that we saw on January 6th with the storming of the Capitol even worse. It would uh, eliminate Republicans trust in the system. And he told me, I just believe with all my heart and soul, that's what would happen. And I'm not going to be part of it. So there's a bit of a problem with the strategy <laughs> as it looks right now. Yeah. What do they do with this? What, is the, what do the Democrats do with this? Because if they push forward, they risk alienating Joe Manchin, who is a conservative Democrat who might even, I don't know, go independent, change parties. Um, and yet if they don't go forward, they risk disappointing their voters. Yeah, I think right now they are kind of just plunging ahead and um, they don't really have a clear idea of how they're going to pass this because of this roadblock from Manchin, but also from other senators who don't want to change the rules. Kirsten Sinema of Arizona is one, and there are others who have been more quiet about it. But 
I think they think that they have to press onward and and just pile on the pressure on these moderates and hope that they change their minds or cave. That's that's really the only strategy right now. The problem is that uh, Manchin, at least, seems to be very dug in that getting rid of the filibuster is a bad idea and that even passing this bill specifically without any Republican support is a bad idea. You wrote a long story about this bill. And one of the things that I was really interested in is separate and apart from the procedural hurdles that the Democrats have, there are some concerns from advocates, from people who look at, you know, voter registration, that maybe this bill might set up some issues down the road if it does become law. Can you walk me through that a little bit? Yeah, publicly, almost every Democrat is supporting this bill and, uh, and and there is public unity behind it. But I spoke to a bunch of people involved in these issues and there are more private uh, misgivings about uh, exactly how the policy has been crafted and what it can do within the Democratic caucus and Democratic operatives and so on. Uh, one of the big issues that uh, was a problem in passing it through the House is that the changes to gerrymandering, as Senator Merkley explained, what the bill would do is set standards for what counts as overly partisan gerrymandering. The issue is that the way gerrymandering works, it involves packing uh, a bunch of voters from one party into just a small number of districts and spreading out the voters of the other party uh, throughout the state so that they can win more districts. But right now, um, there are many districts in the U.S. that are super majority black and that have elected black members of Congress. Uh, we're talking 80 percent or, or so. And um, the members who currently represent these districts, you know, they are inclined towards keeping them. They hmm. think that it would be a, a potential problem with electing black representatives if black voters are spread out throughout the state rather than having these huge majorities in a few districts. Uh, they also might themselves, uh, they've spent their their entire political careers appealing to these sort of districts, and they might not uh, um, think that they can make the transition to a more a, a district with more races or ethnicities uh, uh, representative in the populace. So, so that's one issue. And then there are other concerns about whether certain changes will go far enough, the campaign finance changes, it, it really can't take on big money directly because of Supreme Court ruling. So what it would do is is uh, mandate disclosure of dark money spending and it would supercharge small donor spending by matching small donations of $200 or less, six to one. And there are some fears that this could supercharge the power of Trump's voting base in Republican. He primaries. got a lot of small donations. Exactly. Uh, the people who often appeal, the, the candidates who appeal to small donors, uh, they have to get attention somehow. And one... <laughs> true tested model for doing so is is to be quite extreme and ideologically or um, rhetorically provocative. And then the small donations come roaring in. So for people who fear the continued rise of the power of Trump's base in the Republican Party, uh, they are a bit worried that um, supercharging small donations will only help 
Trumpists uh, win primaries further and uh, and weaken uh, the the corporate wing of the Republican Party that uh, that is at least not so far uh, hardcore in support of Donald Trump. Andrew Prokop, a senior politics correspondent at Vox. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with me. Thanks for having me. Months into a new Democratic presidency, the GOP is trying to solidify its identity in a post-Trump world that sometimes doesn't feel very post-Trump at all. I fully support support the audit in Arizona. We want transparency and answers for the American people. What are the Democrats so afraid of? Transparency is a good thing. We need to fix these election security issues going into the future. That's Elise Stefanik, New York Republican House member, baselessly talking about 2020 election issues in Arizona. And no, it's not from January. That's from this week on Steve Bannon's podcast. Stefanik is far from the fringe right now. She's in line to assume a leadership role in the House if the GOP ousts conference chair Liz Cheney. Cheney, we should note, voted with Donald Trump more often than Stefanik. And Cheney wrote an op-ed this week, essentially pleading for the soul of her party. Cheney, of course, voted to impeach then-President Trump in 2020, and she has been steadfast and accurate in her rejection of the idea that the 2020 election was stolen by Democrats. Cheney wrote in The Washington Post, quote, The Republican Party is at a turning point, and Republicans must decide whether we are going to choose truth and fidelity to the Constitution. I think she's got real problems. I've had it with her. It's, you know, I've lost confidence. That is Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader. He was caught on a hot mic this week talking with a Fox News host about the situation. Plainly, there is momentum toward Cheney no longer being out front. The GOP clearly finds itself searching for both its identity and who should represent that. So what does all this tell us about where the GOP is right now and where it might be headed? To answer that and more, we're joined by Ali Mutnick, campaigns reporter at Politico. Ali, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also with us is Sahil Kapoor, national political reporter for NBC News. Sahil, nice to have you here as well. Hi, Lizzie. Good to join you. Um, Sahil, I, I actually want to start with this question. That is, why does who the conference chair is matter? That seems like this, like, minutia thing that feels very Washington. I wonder if you could explain why this position is so important in terms of what the GOP stands for. It's an interesting question, Lizzie, because I I bet the vast majority of Americans don't know who the conference chairs are on either the Democratic side in the majority or the minority side with the Republicans, but it is an important position because this person is in charge of messaging. And when you're in the minority, messaging is pretty much all you have to fight the majority. You don't have a whole lot of legislative levers to get your bills through. Uh, And the majority, especially in the House of Representatives, can steamroll you on all occasions. So what Liz Cheney right now is in charge of is messaging for the House Republican Conference, how they depict the Democratic efforts uh, ranging from economics to voting rights to gun control to immigration. And that has a huge impact on how the Democrats are seen uh, in certain parts of the country and what the image of the Republicans becomes going forward. So there's a symbolic element and a very tangible element to this role. 
So, Ali, it, it seems like Liz Cheney has become more vocally anti-Trump in the wake of the January 6th Capitol attack. But ha- has she always been anti-Trump? But can you help me kind of parse out where she stands? Yeah, I mean, I think Cheney has always been her own person, right? And she came out of a different Republican era, right? She was a former deputy assistant secretary of state. She's the daughter of a you know, very famous vice president of the Bush era. And so she's always been outspoken on where her views have diverged from President Trump, especially on foreign policy. She also was you know, open about the, the fact that she believed people needed to be wearing masks. And there were some subtle jabs here and there. But I think like for a lot of people, January 6th was the final straw for her. She felt that that was where she needed to fully break with Trump. And I think she just has a long view of the Republican Party and she didn't see Trump in it anymore. Yeah, to me, it's it's shocking as someone who covered politics um, for a long time that someone would publicly break with the Cheney family. You know, if you told me that in 2003, I, I would have sort of fallen over. Um, Sahil, where would you say the power center in the Republican Party lies right now? Well, it's clearly with Trump. There is no real doubt about that in my mind. I think the party has made up its mind as to which direction it wants to go in, and that's continuing to embrace uh, the ideas, the attitudes, and the vision, such as it is, of the former president. And that includes, most notably right now, echoing his falsehoods and the lies about the stolen election in 2020. That is top of his mind. That is the issue that he speaks about most frequently when he appears uh And it is the issue that he's put out multiple statements on as recently as last week, which kind of triggered this whole back and forth with Liz Cheney because she felt the need to respond to him. There is a a feeling among uh, critics of the Republican Party and and some within, and there has been for a long time, that Trump was kind of an aberration, that, you know, he was this alien invasive force that just took over the party and that once he was gone, they would move back in in a more traditionally conservative direction. That does not appear to be the case, and that resoundingly appears to not be the case to the point where someone like Liz Cheney is no longer welcome in House in House Republican leadership because she does not fit that mold. Ali, we played this sound from Elise Stefanik from New York um, as a possible replacement for Cheney. One of the things I find fascinating about her is that she has not always been a vocal Trump supporter. Tell me about her. That's true. I mean, Stefanik had her rise as a GOP moderate. She won. She flipped in a district that Obama won in 2012 and 2014 in upstate New York. And, you know, she was a protege of Paul Ryan and Carl Rove and Mitt Romney. And that was sort of her Republican pedigree. But as her district took a really big swing towards Trump, you know, so did she. And that's sort of part of the politics of it. Do you think this is about um, just ensuring their own reelection, Allie? Well, so I think her district allows her to lean into sort of, you know, how she feels about Trump. So Obama won this district, her district by six points. Trump won it by 14 four years later. So she was following the voters of her district, but then it's also part of, you know, as Sahil said, that's where the power in the Republican Party is. Elise Stefanik saw her rise defending Trump during his first impeachment from the House Intelligence Committee. And she was rewarded in a huge way by small dollar donations. She consistently raises a million dollars every three months because people like, you know, the way she speaks about Trump and the way she defends him. Sahil, uh, I have been listening to the two of you, and it makes sense to some degree that Republican representatives would be all in with Trump when they look at the base of their party. But I think that what might be hard for some people to get their heads around is that they are 
still behind him or maybe even more behind him in the wake of January 6th. That is right. And there was a, a real moment of consternation within the party about January 6th and his role in it. As Liz Cheney is quick to remind everyone, Kevin McCarthy himself said after the, the Capitol attack by supporters of President Trump that the former president had some responsibility for that attack. That was not an uncommon position at the time. There were many Republicans, including later on, uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, who had also put some blame at the feet of Trump. And there was a real moment then when Democrats quickly moved to impeach him. Uh, yes, are are they just like pretending that didn't happen or what's going on? Well, they would rather not talk about it. So essentially, yes, they would like to they would like to move past it. They would like to talk as little about it as possible because it upsets the former president. It upsets his supporters. And they would rather just talk about the Democrats. And, and Mitch McConnell has pretty much moved off of that and has and is doing that, which is why he is more secure in his role than than Liz Cheney. But Liz Cheney refuses to give it up. And look, I talked just a few days ago to someone who knows the Cheneys, a Republican who knows both Dick Cheney, the former vice president, and Liz Cheney. And what this person said was, she is stubborn, just like her dad. If she feels strongly about something, she's going to keep speaking up, and regardless of the political consequences. Ali, I think about the 2022 midterm elections. And One thing that is important to Republicans in terms of winning the majority are these narrow slices of suburban voters. Where do those suburban voters, and often we're talking about white women um, and and white non-college age men, where do they lean? Are they with Trump? Are they movable? What are they thinking now? I mean, it's a really great question. I feel like we've spent the last four years trying to figure out what's going on in the suburbs with Trump. So, you know, you look at 2020 and in a lot of these suburban districts, if you break down the presidential results by the district level, Trump did not win them. He was under 50 in a lot of them. He was, you know, maybe just two or three points ahead of Biden in a district where, you know, Mitt Romney had gotten double digits in 2012. But Republicans picked up seats in the House. And in a lot of districts, Republicans won re-election or won seats, even if Trump didn't do really well. That suggests that there's some openness in these suburbs to voting for Republicans who aren't Trump. But that's part of the problem for the Republican Party is that they still need those voters who love Trump that are really activated by Trump. And so they can't stray too far away from him or they risk those people not showing up in the midterms. They're already at risk of not showing up because Trump himself isn't on the ballot. That's how Democrats were part of how they were able to take the House back in 2018. So they've got to hold together these you know, suburban people who aren't super sold on Trump while also bringing Trump's base out with them. That's their winning formula. Sahil, I'm curious about why Liz Cheney is on the receiving end of these kinds of vocal attacks. We've seen Senator Mitt Romney and occasionally Senator Susan Collins oppose Trump. Obviously, they're in the Senate, so they're up for re-election less often. Their seats are more secure. But why is Cheney such a lightning rod, do you think? A couple of reasons for this. The first is she has been arguably the most outspoken. When the former president, uh, Donald Trump, put out a statement several days ago, essentially repeating his falsehoods about the 2020 election, Cheney responded on Twitter within an hour, called it the big lie and said Republicans need to not echo that and need to dissociate themselves from that. She has gone out of her way to debunk this because she feels strongly about it in a way that many Republicans, the vast majority really, 
are content to just let it pass and not wade into this crossfire. So that's one of the reasons she has more shrapnel on her because she has been willing to to pick this fight with uh, Donald Trump. The other reason, the other theory that's been floated is she's a woman. And yeah. some of her former colleagues and current colleagues uh, privately would say that women tend to be more of a lightning rod when they step into the arena than men. Is she, Ali, going to face any consequences in her own state um, during the midterm elections? I mean, she is, after all, a Cheney in Wyoming, pretty much as close to a, a political dynasty there as you can get. Well, that's what's going to be so interesting is that Trump is turning this into the ultimate test case. You know, he won Wyoming with 70 percent of the vote. He is taking a personal interest in recruiting someone to take Liz Cheney out. And, you know, Trump's super PAC, um, another Republican group that opposes Cheney, the Club for Growth, have released polling showing that she's deep underwater in Wisconsin because they're so loyal to Trump. But, you know, Trump has to come in. His team is, you know, currently recruiting in the state to find one candidate that everyone can rally behind. Because if it's a splintered field against her, she does have a better shot of coming back. But this is a really big, I mean, Trump's legacy is on the line here. We're still obviously talking about Trump, but that no one else seems to have emerged to kind of command the same kind of widespread attention within the GO party as a potential kind of standard bearer. Um, and I guess that makes me think about the next presidential election. Sahil, do you, do you see anyone else who might be seen as a Republican challenger to Trump in the next presidential primary. I don't doubt that some Republicans will try, but at the moment, they are likely to do about as well as they did in the 2020 Republican primaries, which is maybe a few percent here or there. As it's looking, uh, the 2024 Republican nominee is either going to be Donald Trump or someone who aligns with him, who probably may, you know, may or may not have explicitly have his support, but someone who hails from that wing of the party. And there have been, there have been suggestions that it could be someone like former Vice President Mike Pence, if he, if he gets right with, with these voters. Uh, he's clearly trying. Someone like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is very much in the Trump mold and cut from the same cloth, uh, pursuing the same kind of vision and strategy and, and governing attitude of uh, going after the left and, and angering the left, owning the libs, as they call it on the right, hmm. um, as, as, a, as a governing philosophy. So it, it's likely to be someone from that mold as the, the way the current political currents are uh, moving. I am sitting here thinking about all the other things that might be in voters' minds. The pandemic, um, the economy. On Friday, we just got a jobs report that did not look so great. Are we still going to be talking for Republican primary voters primarily about Trump and Trumpism, or do they think about these other things too? I mean, it's a good question. I think, you know, Democrats have spent the entire Trump era running against Trump, turning Trump into the boogeyman and motivating voters that way. And now that they have united government, they're really trying to score some wins and to have something to go out and talk about, you know, on the midterms that's not Trump. So, you know, look, we've put shots in arms, we've put stimulus checks in your pocket. You know, Biden really wants to make moves on infrastructure. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think that their goal is to try to take the conversation away from Trump when they can. Ali Mutnick is a campaigns reporter at Politico. Sahil Kapoor is a national political reporter for NBC News. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to join you. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world. 
even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On Wednesday, a federal judge overruled the nationwide eviction moratorium put in place last year by the CDC due to the pandemic. The judge determined that the CDC did not have the authority to implement such a sweeping ban. But later that same day, the same judge also granted a stay in her ruling due to a challenge from the Biden administration. That means that for now, the eviction moratorium stays in place. A lot of housing advocates fear that the pandemic could ultimately push hundreds of thousands of Americans into homelessness. And while some major cities have not conducted new counts of people experiencing homelessness since the start of the pandemic, data released last week from Washington, D.C. does include a few positive trends. According to a count done by the Community Partnership for the Prevention of Homelessness, the city's unhoused population fell by nearly 20 percent overall during the past year. This was due in large part to more families getting housing. At the same time, the number of D.C. residents experiencing chronic homelessness increased in 2020, and Black Americans were disproportionately overrepresented in the city's unhoused population. Joining me now to talk about this is Martin Ostermule, a D.C. government reporter for WAMU in Washington. Martin, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So according to this latest data, more families who were experiencing homelessness were able to get housing over the past year. Um, are there sort of D.C.-specific things that might account for that? Yeah, over the last six years or so, our mayor, Mayor Muriel Bowser, made a commitment to basically focus on family homelessness. And one way she did that was closing down a big shelter that the city used to have in an old public hospital. It was a terrible place. It was too big. It had thousands of people in it. She closed it down and built smaller neighborhood-based shelters. And so they opened up seven of these shelters over the last five or so years. They're fully functional now, and they seem to be working. People are going in there. They have more personalized attention, and then they can get kind of more permanent housing more quickly than they could when they were in this massive old hospital building that, that no one liked. So I think the mayor is getting a lot of credit for that one that one policy, which was actually pretty controversial, just the idea of putting shelters in different neighborhoods. I mean, she even put a shelter yeah. in a relatively wealthy neighborhood. And those shelters are sort of short-term solutions. Have they helped people kind of have the headspace and the kind of services to get into more long-term solutions? I mean, city officials certainly say so. And there is some proof that that it is working. I mean, average stay in these shelters is now about three months, whereas at the old shelter we were talking, there were people staying there, there were families staying there for years at a time. So people are being cycled through the shelters more quickly. Now, whether they're falling into more permanent and sustainable housing is questionable. There's a lot of reliance on this program called rapid rehousing, which is when the city basically subsidizes a family's rent for about a year or a year and a half, with the assumption being that after that, the family can then take over the rent by themselves. But housing prices being what they are in D.C., which is extremely high, a lot of these families get to the end of their subsidy and can't meet their rent obligations. And there's a lot of data now showing that some of them are ending back in homelessness. At the same time that we're seeing these changes in family homelessness, chronic homelessness also rose over the past year. I think we should dig in a little bit into kind of how chronic homelessness is defined and who that population tends to be. Yeah, chronic homelessness is, well, at least in the district and lots of part of the country, actually, it's majority Black Americans. Um, it's a lot of folks who have 
other issues on top of homelessness. I mean, they could have drug dependency, they could have mental health concerns. And they're the toughest population to deal with because it's not simply a matter of saying, okay, well, here's here's an apartment or here's a shelter, you're, you're good to go. And the district, like a lot of cities, I think has been struggling to, to address those services. I mean, every year they're funding these, these units called permanent supportive housing, which is basically housing plus the services. But advocates say they're not ever how they're not never funding enough of the, the the units that are needed to meet the demand. How accurate was this count that has given DC, you know, some encouraging numbers about homelessness this year? Well, the the, the accuracy of the count is always kind of debated because people aren't questioning the numbers themselves. It is a count that is done on one night of the year. It's done in lots of cities. And that's kind of the baseline for how people measure progress in, in fighting homelessness. But the issue is that it really only counts people who are literally living on the street. It doesn't factor in the other kind of shades of homelessness that people don't really think about. It could be, you could be sleeping in your car for the night. You could be doubling up with family or sleeping on a friend's couch. And so lots of homeless advocates say, that the count is useful, it's important, it gives us a sense of, 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 of a specific slice of homelessness, but it doesn't focus in on housing insecurity. The sorts of people who, sure, they're sleeping under a roof for that night or that week or that month, but that's not sustainable. And they may be on the street two weeks after the count is done. And so they may not be picked up by those numbers. The federal eviction moratorium has obviously played a big role here. DC will still have one when the federal moratorium ends. What might happen when those moratoria go away? Yeah, that's the that's the huge fear here. I mean, the moratorium in D.C. is stronger than the federal one. It's going to remain in place. It's probably going to be in place until the fall. But the concern is that if it goes away in the fall and there haven't been other steps taken, like rent relief of some sort or some sort of big package of, of economic relief, it's just going to be a tidal wave of evictions. And obviously, evictions move slowly through the court system. But you can imagine this idea of thousands of cases being filed by landlords who haven't gotten rent payments over the course of potentially a year. So there's a lot of concern that if we get to next January and they do this this next uh, census of the homeless population, you may see a lot more people who are actually living on the street, not to mention the people who are literally insecure are, are housing insecure and are, are just struggling to stay under one roof or are staying with friends or sleeping in their cars and that sort of stuff. Housing in D.C., like many cities, is quite expensive. Nearly 87% of D.C.'s unhoused population is black. Uh, black residents are about 46% of the city's overall population. And so you have this situation where gentrification, rising housing prices have really factored into this. Um, what is the local government doing and, and what are sort of advocates doing to deal with some of these tensions around housing prices and who can afford to live in the city? Yeah, this is, this is a huge issue because the homelessness at, at its core is an issue of housing, access to housing. And down here in D.C., Mayor Bowser has gotten credit for spending, consistently spending $100 million plus on a yearly basis, building and preserving affordable housing. And that's a lot more than her predecessors had. But the problem is that, first of all, the city was playing catch up. By the time it started building and preserving affordable housing, housing prices were already starting to spiral out of control. It's also who the, the, the housing is targeted to, because again, affordable housing is a very flexible term. And so on the, when they first started building and preserving it, they were focusing more on families or people who were making a little bit more money, not the extremely low income end of the scale. But now the city has shifted to saying, okay, well, the folks who are suffering the most are the ones who are making the least money. So we got to build housing for them. But again, they're basically playing catch up. Just quickly, is there a time horizon that 
advocates and local government officials have given you to kind of when we will start to see whether these policies, affordable housing, more supportive services are helping in the long term? There actually was a really good good kind of deadline, and it was when Mayor Bowser took office in 2015. She said by 2020, so last year, she wanted to make homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring. Now, that's flexible enough that you could actually say that D.C. has met that goal, especially for families, that families are, you know, fewer families are necessarily becoming homeless. When they're homeless, they're homeless for a shorter period of time, and they may not become homeless a second time. But there's plenty of data and anecdotes that that's not necessarily the case for all families. And, it's, and then on the chronic side of things, for individuals, it's certainly not the case. So again, it's, it's kind of moving goalposts. And again, you, you probably have to factor in that a pandemic hit and all the sure. kind of disruption that that caused. So again, it, it's a mixed bag for the mayor. I mean, she has done good things and people give her credit. And, but they also say, listen, for as wealthy a city as D.C. is, there's still much more that can be done. Martin Ostermule, a D.C. government reporter for WAMU. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lizzie. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. That is it for us this week. It has been lovely being with you. And if you want to hear more of me, my podcast is called What Next TBD. We explore technology, power, and who controls the future. It's from Slate. Go check it out. And I'm on Twitter at Lizzie O'Reilly. The team that makes The Takeaway has worked incredibly hard this week, and I want to give them some props here. Vince Fairchild is our broadcast engineer. Sham Sundra board opt for us this week. Jay Cowett is our director and editor. Polly Urungu is our digital editor. And Jackie Martin and Jose Olivares are our line producers. Amber Hall is our senior producer, and her producer crew is Ethan Oberman, Meg Dalton, Patricia Jacob, and Lydia McMullen-Laird. David Gable is our executive assistant, and Lee Hill is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Lizzie O'Leary in for Tanzina, and this is The Takeaway. Takeaway.